The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, I'm Rush McApadia, Associate Editor at Barron's. Welcome to Managing Your Money, How to Navigate Retirement When Inflation is Rising, Markets are Tumbling, and Recession Looms. Today with me is Christine Benz, Director of Personal Finance and Retirement Planning at Morningstar. Welcome, Christine. Hi, Rushma. So great to be with you. So there's so much to talk about. You're like the perfect person to help us navigate 40-year high inflation, worries about recession, obviously a very bumpy um, first half in stocks and bonds. Um, But, you know, I just wanted to take a step back and start with sort of the rules of thumb that we often apply to retirement. Like, um, for example, the advice to save 10 to 20% to have enough in retirement. How should investors be thinking about these types of questions um, is there anything, you know, enough that's different in the economic backdrop um, with things like inflation that require us to maybe um, tinker with with some of those rules of thumb? Right. I think the open question is how long this high level of inflation lasts, but all else equal, if inflation continues to be kind of on the high side, it does argue for saving more. And I've long said that people should try to reach for 15% or 20% of their salaries in terms of a savings target. But with higher inflation, obviously, that complicates things. It makes it difficult to find funds to set aside for saving. But I do do think that higher inflation calls for higher savings rates. For people who are getting close to retirement, the rule of thumb that many people will have heard is this 4% guide, guideline, and we can yeah. talk about what that means. But I still think that that is a good quick and dirty stress test for people who are trying to figure out, well, I'm a few years from retirement or maybe five years of retirement. Look at four percent of your current portfolio, see what that amounts to in terms of an annual paycheck for you, combine that with what you expect to get from Social Security or a pension and see if that's a livable income stream. It's not perfect, the 4% guideline, but I think it's a decent starting point for people who are just trying to figure out whether they have enough or are close to having enough. Yeah, that back of the envelope sort of gut check, I guess, is, is, is good. So that, that's great. So is it, you brought up the 4% withdrawal, which obviously is a um, topic of much discussion these days, you know, if that is the right withdrawal um, number, if that, you know, how you should tweak that based on what's going on. Give us, um, give us sort of your thoughts these days, given the fact that we've had this market um, downturn and we're dealing with inflation. So if you're a retiree in the withdrawal process where you're tapping your portfolio, what should you be thinking about? Well, when we say 4%, I think it's important to talk about what that means. It doesn't mean that you would just take 4% of your balance in perpetuity year right. in and year out. And the reason is, is that that's just going to buffet you around too much in terms of your cash flows, that it's really volatile. And it's a big, it makes a big difference to people if their portfolio drops, we're telling them it's okay to live on 40,000 one year and the mm-hmm. next year it's 30,000. People hate that. So the idea is that you're with if you're using a 
percent style guideline or a fixed real withdrawal system, you're taking 4% or whatever the percentage is of your initial balance when you're embarking on retirement. And then you're just inflation adjusting that dollar amount thereafter. Mm -hmm. So we did some research within our team last year at Morningstar, where we actually concluded that if retirees want to be really safe and have a 90% probability of not running out of money, they ought to bring that balance or that initial withdrawal down a little bit. So mm -hmm. more into the low 3% range. The good news is that because the market has sunk a little bit, stocks have sunk, bond yields have come up. We actually, I, my expectation is when we revisit that research later this year, that that starting withdrawal amount that seems safe to us will actually lift a little bit yeah, because the, the raw materials for investment returns are just better mm -hmm. because valuations, equity valuations are lower and bond yields are higher. The silver lining it is. The we're dealing with right now. Um, okay, so let's let's talk a little bit about inflation, which obviously is a major concern and everyone feels it at the pump or the grocery store, or the medical bills. Um, what is the risk for people who are near or in retirement from inflation? And is it too late to add some sort of protection at this point in time? Yeah, all good questions. And I do think about sequence of inflation risk. We often hear about sequence of return risk. So yeah. if you encounter a crummy market early in your, your retirement, how bad that can be for your retirement plan. Well, you could arguably think about inflation in a similar vein. So if inflation is high at the outset of your retirement, the inflation rate may go down, but that starting level of spending is may not go down that much, that that current prices may not go down that much. They might not rise as rapidly in the mm -hmm. future. So I do think it's a risk that people ought to be concerned with mitigating. And there are two key assets that I think about as mitigants for inflation risk. The first would be any sort of inflation protected bond. So mm -hmm. I bonds, which you can buy from the treasury or treasury inflation protected securities, both of those provide you with sort of a direct hedge against inflation. And as we move into retirement and as we begin to draw from our portfolios, it seems to me that we'd want to allocate more of our bond position to those types of bonds that mm -hmm. effectively shield our purchasing power from inflation. So you're looking at inflation protected bonds. And then long run, I think stocks are a great way to at least have an asset in your portfolio that is likely to out earn inflation. Mm -hmm. And I always take pains to note that stocks aren't in any way any sort of direct inflation hedge. And 2022 is a great example. You know, we have really yeah. high inflation and we have crummy stock market yeah. returns. Yeah. So there's not that one to one sort of hedging effect. But over long periods of time, stock returns have typically been in the high single digits and inflation has typically run lower than that. Mm -hmm. So I would keep it pretty plain vanilla. And then related to the timing, I think that with inflation protected bonds, don't get yourself too worked up about the timing. If you need to add a position to them, uh, arguably that the timing is reasonable to think about adding those bonds and stocks have certainly sold off as well. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I wouldn't get too worked about 
too worked up about the timing of those two assets. Other assets, commodities, I would say I'm a little bit more worried about. Uh, prices have certainly come down. But one thing we see when we look back on the data is that investors tend to have tended to mistime their purchases of commodities related investments. They have been nice long run inflation hedges, but investors have typically gotten into them a little bit late. Yeah. And so I would be more careful there. Hmm. What about real estate and REITs? I mean, that seems to have also taken a bit of a hit um, this year and, and perhaps maybe not been much of a buffer. That's right. Um, when we do look at uh, the performance of REITs, we do see that they tend to be a pretty good inflation protector. And the reason's pretty intuitive. And it's something we've been seeing this year in the economy where landlords can push through rent increases oftentimes when the economy is going strong and inflation's running high. But we haven't seen that play out this year for a couple of reasons. One is simply that investors often own REITs for their income. And when yields on bonds are coming up, investors say, well, forget this higher risk equity security that has a yield attached to it. I'm going to own a higher yielding bond in this environment. And the other issue is that uh, higher interest rates reduce the price profitability yeah. uh, of, of uh, real estate operators. Yeah. Yeah. So um, REITs have not been great inflation protection this year. I would say, though, for investors who are worried about the timing issue, they may be a little bit protected on that front. So if they want to have REITs in their portfolio long term, they could, could consider adding positions. REITs have come down. Um, the whole market has come down, though. Sure. So REITs aren't all that cheap relative to the broad equity market. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, okay, so, I mean, given the economic and market backdrop, does your view on Social Security change? Because, you know, we often tell people to delay um, grabbing Social Security because you get the inflation protection and all that. So does that change at all in this environment? I don't think so. My worry, though, Reshma, is that investors thinking about this might change. So we've seen this encouraging data on social social security claiming where people seem to have gotten the message that delaying is often a good strategy because it helps improve your longevity risk hedging. Mm -hmm. It helps improve the odds that your total plan will uh, sustain you over your lifetime. It helps yeah. lift your lifetime payouts. My worry is that as people's balances are a little bit depressed and as mm -hmm. their bonds have fallen right along with their stocks, my concern is that investors might say, well, I think I may accelerate my social security claiming just to get some income flowing. I know I want to retire this year or next year. And so I'm, I'm worried that we might see some reversal. But no, I think the, the data that point to the value of delayed claiming still hold up. One tool I often recommend is a free tool. It's called Open Social Security, which was developed by Mike Piper. Mm. He is a social security expert and a tax expert. And you can model out uh, claiming strategies for married couples, where it sometimes gets a little bit more complicated, figuring out who should claim when based yeah. on different ages and earnings histories. So um, the tool is quite sophisticated from the standpoint of helping couples figuring figure out their optimal claiming dates. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that is that is definitely a topic that many people have asked about. Um, so, I, you know, we, you mentioned both stocks and bonds, obviously, have had a difficult first half of the year. Um, you know, so as people are thinking about their asset allocation, we have a couple questions. You know, Ron asks, in a market that's bottoming out, 
both in equities as well as in fixed income, assuming you had sort of a 60-40 portfolio, how do you think one corrects a portfolio without absorbing serious losses of selling low? You know, I guess that that's, you know, there's also the question of like, is it too late to make the tweaks um, now that we've already seen declines, especially in the fixed income portfolio? Yeah, really great question. And and the short answer is it may be. I mean, I don't love the idea of people tweaking their asset allocations during a cycle like this. I like the idea of people sticking to it, sort of a once annual total portfolio mm-hmm. review where maybe they do some rebalancing. Today, I would say if investors are doing that rebalancing and looking to sort of go back to the, whatever target they had for themselves, the recent market action, because it has punished equities a little bit more than bonds. Investors looking at that today may want to top up their equity Mm -hmm. exposure, which doesn't feel great in an environment like this, but uh, is probably the right call. I would say also look at the intra asset class positioning. So within equities, for example, uh, we've had a long running uh, performance pattern where non-US stocks have underperformed US. For investors who haven't looked at that for a while and want to set their portfolios up for what might be better performance going forward, tweaking that intra-asset allocate intra-asset class allocation, I think, makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. So on, on that front, there are some other questions. So I, I guess if you're talking about stocks as, as we are now, you know, how do you decide how much to invest in sort of steady dividend stocks? It's a question from Dave David who asks, you know, if you're thinking about dividend versus growth, how should you be thinking about that, that sort of um, balance? Yeah, I I think it depends on the investor. I do like the idea of investors as they approach retirement, especially if they're somewhat risk averse, tilting their portfolios a little bit more toward dividend paying stocks, perhaps even dividend growth stocks. I have these model portfolios on Morningstar.com that are just there for illustration purposes. But in the in retirement portfolio for people who are in decumulation mode, actually have a pretty heavy allocation to Vanguard dividend appreciation, which is the ETF, but the actively managed fund dividend growth is a good one as well. But the idea is that as you get into retirement, you know, you want to have a a fairly heavy equity allocation for that growth and for that inflation protection, but you want it to be a little bit more safe, perhaps than total market. I think Mm -hmm. it's perfect, perfectly reasonable to shade the portfolio a little bit toward those dividend paying stocks. What I would say though, Reshma, is that people should also perhaps hold a little bit of total market exposure alongside the dividend paying stocks. And the reason is that by emphasizing dividend paying stocks, oftentimes you are kind of short shrifting certain parts of our economy. So technology stocks, for example, super hard hit so far in 2022. But I think most of us would probably agree long term, those are good places to be. Mm -hmm. So I would include an allocation to total stock market or something that includes that growth exposure. That's a good point. Um, So, you know, you mentioned growth and there's this growth versus value debate that has been long running um, in the industry and sort of amongst investors. And um, I'm just kind of curious how you see that and if we should even be thinking about growth versus value, given we are moving into sort of a new paradigm with the inflationary backdrop. 
Right. Good question. We've seen growth stocks obviously super hard hit so far this year. The interesting thing is when I look at the price to fair values that our equity analysts have for each of the style box squares, so they they do their price to fair values for the, their individual companies, but then we can sort of roll them up on a style box basis in an effort to see, well, are there cheap pockets of the style, style box? What's expensive today? The interesting thing is when we look at that today, there's a pretty even distribution of price to fair values that that growth stocks have gotten knocked down so far, so far this year that actually the price to fair values are just as low in the growth side of the style box. So my bias would be for investors not to get too fancy in terms of trying to time their value versus growth exposure to Mm -hmm. kind of be neutral there seems like a reasonable place to start. So keying off of that, (laughs) Jeff is asking if someone wants to start dollar cost averaging into the market, what do you think is sort of the best core fund for someone with a five to seven year horizon? Well, I'm a boglehead. So I generally start with the very plain vanilla building blocks. Um, Five to seven year time horizon, though, assuming that's like proximity to retirement, it seems like you would want some combination of total U.S. market, uh, total international and fixed income. If assuming that the five to seven year horizon means like a spending horizon, I would also hold maybe total bond market, and then an allocation to short-term bonds, probably too early to build out a separate cash allocation at Mm -hmm. that life stage. But I like the idea of holding some short-term bonds. And we've seen so far this year that certainly short-term bonds have held their ground much better than the broad bond market has. So I like the idea of maintaining a dedicated allocation to short-term bonds, especially as you get closer to that spend-down phase. So you talked about sort of the cash bucket or the short-term bucket, which cash is is a very hot topic these days. You know, so if you're talking about retirees, um, let's talk just briefly about sort of the bucket idea and then what you should have in that cash bucket these days. Yeah, and I always have to take pains to credit this bucket concept to Harold Avensky, who's a financial planner and a financial planning uh, professor. But uh, the basic idea is that you are using your portfolio spending to inform how you allocate your portfolio. So the idea with this bucket approach, or that's kind of the way I think about it, is that you are putting, say, one to two years worth of portfolio expenditures in that cash bucket. So if my uh, starting portfolio withdrawal is going to be $30,000 and I wanted to have a two-year buffer, I'd have $60,000 in cash. In terms of the complexion of that cash portfolio, when we look at accounts today, we have seen yields pick up, but they're still super meager. They're not keeping up with the inflation rate. So, you know, you're lucky to get 2%. You could use some sort of a laddered CD portfolio. I-bonds might fit into this, uh, assuming that you had started a few years ago and, and your I-bonds mm-hmm. were liquid. Um Uh, Savings accounts, online savings accounts can be part of the mix, money market mutual funds. I would say you could use a combination of these asset types. It doesn't need to be sunk all in one place, but the basic idea is one to two years worth of spending. 
That's great. Um, so I just want to remind the audience, if you haven't gotten your questions in, please submit them and, and we'll try to get to them in the last um, 10, 15 minutes that we have here. Um, so, you know, you, you mentioned sort of, um, we, and we talked about sort of how, how do you know how, how much in, is enough in retirement? Someone has asked about um, whether it matters, sort of Christopher asks, if you should account for your own genetic DNA regarding longevity probability when calculating, you know, how much money is needed in retirement. Have you guys thought about that at all? Absolutely. I think people should think about their own life expectancies. And the good news is, as we get closer to retirement, we start to have some clues about longevity within our family and also about our own health histories. Um, we typically, when we do our modeling for retirement spending, we assume a 25 to 30 year withdrawal rate because we know, especially for wealthier people, longevity has actually been increasing. It's been decreasing a little bit in the lower income segments of our population. But uh, most people would rather be safe than sorry in terms mm -hmm. of making sure that their portfolios last. But I would say people absolutely should incorporate their own health histories, their own family his health histories when deciding what type of a spending horizon to plan for. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think we, we were talking about this before, but, you know, studies have shown that retirees often sort of hate dipping into principal and really just want to live off of sort of yield and income. And, you know, we have a question from Jean who says, you know, she, her and her husband are 69, they're retired, they get social security, they don't have pensions or debt, they own their home, they have maybe a net worth of about $1.7 million. Um, they're trying not to withdraw except to cover the bills from their managed IRA. Considering They're considering moving to, man, to like a managed dividend portfolio um, to generate income. Good idea. You know, should they be thinking about a Roth conversion? Um, so a couple questions in there for you, Christine. You know, one, what do you think of this idea of people just trying to live off of um, the interest or the income off of their portfolios. And then, you know, if you want to try to do that, you know, what do you think of a sort of a dividend aristocrat portfolio to help you generate that income? Yeah. So I don't love the idea of retirees being disproportionately attached to living off of income in part because, especially when yields were much, much lower, I would sometimes, you know, work with retirees who would show me their portfolios that they had built in the name of income. And in some cases, those portfolios looked pretty undiversified because they had favored the high dividend stocks and short shrifted some other parts of the market and the economy. So a dividend focused portfolio often has a heavy emphasis on energy stocks, financial services stocks might have relatively less in the technology sector, biotechnology, and so forth. So I, I think portfolio balance is, is super important as people are thinking about what sort of decumulation strategy they might use. Uh, I will say that in my experience, retirees are getting a little bit more comfortable dipping into principal. And, and what I would say is at the end of the day, the Dividend-focused strategy might provide some peace of mind in terms of providing you with that ongoing series of cash flows, but it might also reduce your portfolio's return potential. So if you're not reinvesting those dividends and you're spending them, that it uh, reduces your portfolio's return. So my bias is just to keep things pretty neutral in terms of dividend versus non-dividend paying stocks, just maintain a balanced total 
return portfolio and then periodically harvest whatever has gone up the most over mm. the past year. Um, but I can definitely see the appeal of dividend paying stocks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Gerald is asking how to manage taxes. Um you know, especially given um, the inflationary pressures we're also seeing in our portfolios. So, I mean, I, I think tax allocation is a, is a big topic, but how, how do you sort of explain that to investors? Yeah, it's a big topic. And the previous question mentioned Roth conversions as mm -hmm. well. And one general point I would make is just that paying for tax advice in retirement can pay for itself many times over. Mm -hmm. Getting some guidance on which accounts to pull from in a given year might vary from, from year to year, that there might not be a formula where you would go, okay, I'm going to start by pulling from taxable, spend that down, move on to my tax deferred, spend all that down and leave my Roth till last. In many retirements, it's kind of a ballet where you're pulling a little bit from here and a little bit from there. And you're also managing your deductions. So I would say get some tax advice that's kind of traditional sequence of returns that we hear about uh, where you're going taxable, then tax deferred, then Roth is, I would say, a good starting point, but get some customized advice uh, when, when deciding how to manage your taxes in retirement. And also use the early retirement years as a period to do some planning. Those are often the lower income years, the lower taxable income years of retirement, where you're not earning an income from your job anymore but you're not yet subject to those required minimum distributions that kick in at age 72, that's a superb time period to manage your future tax bills. Uh, so you may want to do conversions during those years. You may even want to accelerate your withdrawals from traditional tax deferred accounts. Mm. Um, so that's a, a period to think about. I, I, my friend Maria Bruno at Vanguard has called that kind of the sweet spot of retirement tax planning, and I would agree. Well, that's, that's great. That's a good tip um, for people. So I think uh, you mentioned an advisor for taxes. You know, there are a couple of questions from Gary and some others and when it makes sense to pay a personal wealth advisor to manage retirement funds, given the management fees required, you know, how should people be thinking about that? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I, at a minimum, I think retirees should get some kind of advice when embarking on their retirements. Whether it's someone who is an ongoing wealth manager, I think is an open question. It depends on the investor's own comfort level right now with managing his or her financial affairs, but also looking forward into the future and saying, okay, so I like doing this now when I'm 65 and I feel competent doing it, but will I want to do it when I'm 85? Mm -hmm. Um, so do that self-analysis. It's, uh, it's hard to sort of issue one size fits all recommendations about whether or not to seek financial advice. But I think the instinct is right to be parsimonious about what you pay for those fees because all of the fees we pay for our plan, whether investment advice fees or the individual investment expenses, all of those things nick away at our portfolio's return potential, along with inflation and tax costs. So it's worth making sure that you're not overpaying for whatever type of advice you're paying, you're, mm -hmm. you're getting. That's always always good a good tip. Um, so you know you we talk about sort of how much you have saved for retirement, and I'm wondering about sort of the long term care bucket, mm -hmm. and um, if you are creating a bucket for long term care, you don't have long term care insurance. 
what should be in that in that bucket? I'm wondering if Morningstar has done some work on that. I have written about this topic, Reshman. You know that I am a little bit obsessed with it because both of my parents had a long-term care need um, and they did not have long-term care insurance yeah. and thankfully had the funds to cover their their costs. But it was, you know, not, not a pleasant time in my family. And mm -hmm. so I think that everyone should at least have a plan for long-term care. And many people have decided to go without insurance because the claims experience has been so terrible for many yeah. people who have purchased insurance. So if you're setting aside a fund for long-term care, I love the idea of segregating it from your spendable assets. And you might think of it as kind of a bucket four or like who knows what will happen sort mm -hmm. of bucket. Um, and this will typically be the longest term bucket in anyone's asset allocation. People usually have long-term care needs toward the end of their lifetimes. So how that bucket should be allocated, I think, would depend on your age. So if you're a 65-year-old just kind of setting up your plan, you the data would suggest that you probably would not have a long-term care need for another 15 to 20 years. Yeah. And to me, that suggests that you'd probably want to invest that bucket pretty aggressively. You'd probably want to be pretty stock heavy or at least be balanced in terms of the portfolio's allocation because we've seen long-term care costs running higher than the general inflation rate. Recently, mm -hmm. I think they've come under the general inflation rate, but prior to this yeah. recent period, they had been running higher. So you want to make sure that you are invested pretty aggressively to out earn inflation. And so I think I, if I, and correct me if I'm wrong, but usually um, people need like two to three years of sort of long-term care needs on average, if they end up needing it. I mean, so if it's a couple, do you sort of, man, you know, kind of set aside two or three years of expense with some assuming that you'll maybe need only one of you will need it or how much, how much should they be allocating to that bucket? I love that question. And I think mm -hmm. that two to three years is a good starting point for deciding how much long-term care expense to set aside. And, you know, it's, as a benchmark, we're looking at long-term care expenses when we look at the Genworth data of like $100,000 a yeah. year currently. So um, two to three years per person. But I like the idea of retirees being holistic about it because one asset that often comes to play and comes into play in this situation would be housing wealth. Exactly. That right. if you've got the second spouse who um, maybe the long-term care fund has been exhausted due to the first spouse's long-term care need, the second spouse may have some housing wealth. The home would likely be sold or may be sold or could be tapped for a reverse mortgage in that instance. So think about it holistically. Also just think about the type of care that you may want and build that into your plan as well. So many retirees, I would argue most retirees would say, I probably would like to stay in my home if I possibly can. And so that housing wealth might need to be tapped uh, through a reverse mortgage in that instance, if, mm -hmm. if that's the case. Yep, that's that's great advice. I know that's a very big topic for many people because they're all sort of struggling with it. Yes. Um, so I've got a couple questions. I'm going to kind of hit you with rapid fire to see if you can answer. <laughs> um, so first of all, this one's easy. Joseph is asking about the social security tool again. I think you said it was called um, Open Social Security. Is that right? That's right. Okay, it's, great. Yep. That was an easy one. Um, and then speaking of long-term care, Steve asks, my insurance company is giving me an option of increasing the daily coverage by $22, but the increase in monthly premium will go up $79. 
Um, I know that a lot of people kind of come across this where the, you know, the premiums are, are rising. And often what we've been telling people is to maybe take the reduction in the benefit if you need. Um, Steve's asking if it's worth increasing the daily coverage. What do you think? It's individual specific. And I think it depends on household budget and whether that price increase, the premium increase is something that you can readily sustain or something that would be a hardship. If it seems like it might be a hardship, then then reducing the benefit might be appropriate. But I do think it's, it's fairly individual specific. And at the end of the day, I would say long-term care coverage is kind of a luxury good. The extent to which you are able to pay for it or care to pay for it boils down to kind of a peace of mind decision as much as it is a financial decision. So if you're someone who very much will enjoy your retirement that much more if you know that you have that fully funded long-term care expense, then perhaps paying up for the higher uh, future benefit may be worth it. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, So, you know, there's a question about if you can do a one-time penalty and tax-free transfer of funds from your IRA to an HSA account. Do you know if that's possible? I don't know off the top of my head, Reshman. I'd hate to answer without really knowing. So, you you know, HSAs are are something that comes up often. I know there's sort of the triple tax um, suite there, right? Can you just give us a quick sort of um, example of sort of where they may be appropriate for people who are near or in retirement? Right. I think HSAs are fabulous asset to bring into retirement. And as you mentioned, they have that triple tax benefit. So, tax-free contributions, tax-free compounding, and then tax-free withdrawals in retirement. In retirement, once you are past age 65, uh, you can uh, withdraw from your HSA for non-healthcare related expenses. And at that point, those withdrawals are taxed just like your uh, traditional IRA or 401k would be. One interesting wrinkle, and this gets a little bit complicated, but if people have been paying their health care expenses using non-HSA assets, as long as you have the receipts to show that you paid from non-HSA assets, so usually from taxable assets, you can actually withdraw from that HSA on a tax-free basis later on, including in retirement, if you have the receipts to show that, yeah. that you, you have paid uh, those costs using non-HSA assets. I always found that fascinating. So it's really, it's really. So save those receipts. Exactly. (laughs) Really Save and document. (laughs) Um, One key thing to note about HSA expenditures is that HSAs, if they're inherited by someone other than your spouse, are not that great from a tax standpoint. So the assets will essentially be fully taxable. So um, ideally, if you're a single person or if you're a married person that you'd spend those assets during the lifetime, during your own lifetime and the lifetime of your spouse, because the the great tax benefits effectively disappear when when you both pass away. Mm, okay, that's that's great advice. Thank you. Um, so I guess you know let let's end with sort of the three pieces that you've gleaned from all your years at Morningstar that you think investors should keep in mind, especially now. 
Well, a couple of things. First, I would say, um, you know, one overarching mantra for me and my work at Morningstar is just the virtuous of simplicity. I always like to look at financial plans, look at portfolios and say, is there a way to simplify this using very low cost building blocks? And I wish that investors would bring that eye to their own portfolios and their own plans. And I always say, you know, to investors who are hearing about certain investment products, ask all of your questions about that product until you're comfortable with it, um, rather than just adding it to your portfolio or, or listening to an advisor without necessarily uh, feeling a, a total comfort level. So keep it keep it simple. Um, another piece of advice is just with retirement planning, it's super complicated. We've talked about so many moving parts during this discussion. So get some help. And whether that is the help of an ongoing financial advisor, or maybe just an hourly person who you see for that one-time check-in, or a once annual check-in, or once every five-year check-in, get some help. Um, and then another thing that I've been thinking about, and maybe it's the pandemic that has had me feeling a little bit uh, ruminative, but I, I think I've been thinking more about kind of time on earth allocations, mm -hmm. how we spend our precious time on earth, I think is every bit as important as how we spend our financial capital. And so I love the idea of people just taking a step back and saying, is how I'm using my time, whether in my pre-retirement years or in my retirement years, is it giving me that sense of, of purpose and community and, and identity that uh, tends to make me feel like I'm a happier person and that, that I live my life productively. So kind of a cheesy note to end on, but something that I've been thinking a lot about. Very relevant. I think a lot of people have been thinking the same. So um, thank you so much, Christine. This has been wonderful. It's all the time we have for today. Thank you to the audience for tuning in. We hope you listen to our next episode tomorrow. Market Watch reporter Alessandro Melito and AARP expert David John will discuss what near retire how near retirees are faring with record high inflation, what this all means for an older workforce and generation hoping to retire. So jumping off many of the points that we talked about here today. Um, thank you for listening. Be well and have a nice day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.